This afternoon I got to listen to Pastor Sir Nicholas' sermon this morning, which he actually preached last night. <laughs> so he's preaching on the will of God, the revealed will of God, and he said, I hear these Christians praying. And it was like, you don't have to pray about that. God already told you about that. He said, obedience is the will of God. So his message was obedience this morning from the will of God perspective. And he did reference some of 1 Peter. So very interesting corollaries. We are in our study of Jesus Christ. We are now going to go through his birth narrative theologically. You know it historically. You know the biblical accounts. And you probably know most of what I have to share in the study tonight on it theologically. Uh, I just don't know that we think about it very much, but maybe you do. Uh, but uh, to meditate upon and consider the significance of what we are talking about when we look at Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension. And I try to really drive home not only the historical events and their uh, application to us, but also their significance. Why it had to be that way and not some other way because it has to be in keeping with the nature of who God is and his demands of his entire person, not only his personhood, but his attributes as well have to be addressed and satisfied. So we are on number four under Jesus Christ on page 15 of your study, and this is titled, Jesus came to earth to live and his birth was a miracle. And so we have the incarnation, that is when Jesus became flesh, God became flesh, incarnate, uh, in the flesh, uh, enabled the Son to become our perfect sacrifice. And of course, we can look at a lot of the narratives from his birth. And we've already referenced one last week, which was Isaiah 7, 14, when we talked about the fact that the Son's name would be Everlasting Father, and so that idea that God, that Jesus Christ, God the Father and Jesus Christ are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And that the, the Son is the revealer of the Father. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. It's the last one on your list of verses. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, and this is the one I told you we would get into. If you have any comments or anything from the other passages, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to have you share those right after we had done with Philippians chapter 2. So keep those on your, on your uh, cuff there, and we'll be, get to them here if you have some of those other passages you've looked up and want to engage about. Philippians chapter 2 is, is called the kenosis passage. That's the just theologians using a Greek word and making it sound really complicated. And kenosis is, is a word used in the text, so let's go ahead and read it. Philippians 2, we're going to get down to verse 7, but let's start in verse 5, and which is really the theological underpinning of the instructions of verses 1 through 4. But let's start in 5. Let this, mind be in which, which, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men." And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those in the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. So we have here really an overlay of all the points we're going to handle tonight. We're going to talk about his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we are confronted with a, a term here. So let's talk about this term. Uh, that he emptied himself, that he became, made himself of no reputation. It is the terms that we have here in verse 7. Uh, and how to translate kenosis uh, is, is literally just to empty, to empty it out. And perhaps some of your translations would have it that he emptied himself, uh, made himself no reputation. It is the demonstration of his humility. And that's what's being focused in on here in Philippians 2. This is what we want to show to one another, is humility, that that's the foundation of honoring one another, submitting to one another, and ministering, serving one another. And so if I think I'm better than you, I'm not going to serve you very well. Uh, but if I esteem others better than myself, then I will serve them constantly. Whether they deserve it or not, whether I think they are appreciative or not, I'll simply keep serving it because uh, uh, of my view of myself in relation to them and particularly in relation to God. And so the foundation of our ministry to one another, the mind that we have to have, the mentality behind good ministry is humility, that I consider or esteem others better than myself. And that is communicated uh, here, and in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself in verse 3. And so that's the theme that Paul is pressing here of how to move on and to develop and to expand ministry has to be that everyone that comes before you in your life, that you do not sit there and condemn them, but rather you say, well, here's an opportunity for ministry, that we see their, their shortcomings and the things that might annoy us, and we say, well, here's a place for ministry. Instead of, you know, uh, not them, Lord. Okay, and so that is the focus here, Paul. You want to expand ministry, then you have to have the mind of Jesus Christ. To whom did Jesus come to minister? Not to those that he liked, not to those that he got along with, not to those that he chose ahead of time. He came to minister to the world that hated him. And yes, he, did he speak some harsh words sometimes? Absolutely. He spoke some very difficult words to men who were resistant to him, and he called them names, right? Is name-calling acceptable ministry? Apparently, because Jesus did it. If it's honest, if it's an honest name, we need to call each other out on it and say, you know, so when my wife comes up and says, you worry wart, well, she called me a name. <laughs> she called me a name. Well, I'm not a millennial, okay, so it doesn't bother me. So I know she's calling me a name. We had a discussion about this yesterday about because I was complaining because somebody just st put stuff in my truck without being in a box. And, <laughs> and it was Bill, and Bill's standing right there, and my son heard that, so that's going to really offend somebody, <laughs> especially when he's standing right beside you. And I'm like, it doesn't offend us because... We're not millennials. Um, and, and so she calls me a worry word. What is she telling me? She's communicating something to me by the name calling. What's she communicating? Get over yourself. Get past this sin because we know that worry is sin and she sees me worrying and not sleeping or pacing or whatever. She says, stop this. This is nonsense. You, and she calls me a name. You worry wart. 
and, uh, and it just doesn't go away. It just keeps, stays there. There's nothing you can do about it. And it's just better to just trust in the Lord. Well, Jesus Christ did the same kind of thing. Paul did the same thing. He called people out, sometimes by calling them names and gruesome things. Uh, even in the Old Testament, you see some terms being used. Um, and uh, some positive, some negative. Remember what the king said to the prophet, you troubler of Israel. Uh, and so it's bo- it cuts both ways. So if you're going to dish it out, be ready to take it. And then the, what does the prophet say? I'm not the one that troubled Israel. You did. Right? So uh, we recognize that people are going to misuse that privilege. But Jesus Christ called them, call you whitewashed sepulchers, you brood of vipers. Uh, he called them out. But interestingly, that while he did that, he still was preparing to die for them. Because he had humbled himself, became a servant to all of them. He didn't just die for his 12 disciples, for the 150 or whatever that was there, 120 that were gathered at his before ascension. No, he died for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, even these whitewashed sepulchers, these brood of vipers, and, and, and Jesus communicates that. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to draw you in as a hen, her chicks, but you weren't willing. Jesus Christ comes and he is, his kenosis, his emptying of himself, is the epitome, the height of humility. So with that as our foundation, he became flesh. How does the God, who is equal with the Father, become limited to man? And that's what kenosis requires. That's what is required, is kenosis. That he empties himself. This isn't about his reputation. This is about his attributes. He emptied himself. How does God become a man? What does he have to empty himself of? Does he cease to become, be God? Okay, because that's an error. We're not saying that. So what is he emptying himself? So Jesus Christ is still God, but he's God in the flesh. So what is he emptying himself of? All right, we're going we're gonna to start building a list. Power, knowledge, authority, to a degree. We'll talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about that, yeah. But he had to empty himself. I mean, we're talking about an infant in a womb. Was Jesus all-knowing as an infant? Okay, and I would contend he wasn't all-knowing um, from that point forward in his earthly ministry. We'll talk about these other examples. What else? What did, it, what did he have to empty himself of? Go back to the list of the attributes of God in that study. His omnipresence. He can't be omnipresent because he's in Mary's womb now. So he can't be there and across the street, right? So his omnipresence has to be emptied off. What else? All right, now he's going to have hunger and thirst. He's going to have to be fed. He's going to have to learn to talk, walk, all those things. Wow. Oh, he's going to have to honor his parents. He's going to have to obey his father and mother. He's going to have to submit himself to their authority. And he's going to have to submit himself to the authority of the law that, is, that he wrote. So we're going to go through this. So he's surrendering. He is not surrendering. He is, so does he cease to be omniscient is the question. And 
theologians struggle with this. Does Jesus Christ cease to have those things? And from a human perspective, we would say yes. Um, from a divine perspective, we would probably say, well, he still possessed them, but he, but the word here is emptied. What does empty mean? Okay, empty means empty, right? It doesn't mean held in reserve. Okay, we have a cup that confuses my grandkids. We have a cup that has an inner and outer wall, and in between is water. You put it in the freezer, and the water freezes, expands, and fills that, and then it helps keep the, the drink cold when you're outside. Um, but we don't put it in the freezer, so it's just water. It looks like it has water in it, no matter whether it's empty or full. And they look at that, and they shake it, and they suck on an empty cup. There's nothing in there, but it looks like it. Is that what God did? Or did he truly empty himself? And so we want to, be, we want to understand this idea of kenosis, because theologians have always tempered us. They have done, you can't believe the linguistics they have messed around with this word to make it less than what it says. He emptied himself of something or some things so that he could become man. And if we don't have that, we have a problem. And then we have the other word, taking the form of a bondservant, coming the likeness of men. And now either we, uh, they say, well, if you want to say, he preserves his deity, then you have to change the last half of the verse. And so we have error at the front end of trying to say he's, he did less than what that says, and then at the other end that he did less than what that says. They didn't really become fully man. He's in the form of a man. That's called modalism, and that is an error that Jesus Christ just became in form like a man, he took on a man mode, and then he, he stopped being in the man mode and became the back to the God mode. And so it's one God that's just in different modes. And uh, no, that's, modalism is, is error, it's heresy. And so because then there's no, there's no triune God. Uh, and so that passage in First Peter we talked about this morning, that there's the foreknowledge of the Father, there's the sanctification of the Spirit, and there's the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that, that all three are involved, that there is uh, Jesus talking to the Father. The Father's voice is heard. The Spirit comes upon him at the baptism. And so those aren't modalistic at all. So we have people doing damage to the front end of the verse and the back end of the verse, trying to make sure that Jesus stays God. But Jesus is God because they have taken his attributes as a definition of Godhood. Instead of God is the first person. Not human person. He is a personality. He is the divine, he is the eternal, without origination person, the eternal one. And so he has possession of attributes that do not define him, um, but he possesses them. And so can we put those off? Of course we can. And just like, and, and um, I had a discussion this last a week, I guess it's two weeks ago, was talking about the difference between um, in the protesting. They were asking about the protest. I said, I don't mind people protesting, um, but as soon as you um, resist the the as soon as you, as soon as you resist the consequence 
of sitting in the middle of the street for a protest, um, you know, if a cop has to come and pick you up and carry you and you hit the cop, now you've committed a crime. So what is the proper response to a cop coming and picking you up off the street because you're protesting, if you're truly protesting? You simply let him. You do nothing. You kenosis, your strength. Do you have the strength to fight them? Yes, but you don't. You just go limp, is what they tell you to do. Just go limp and make them carry you off as dead weight. Hopefully not dead, but dead weight. And so uh, you go limp, and it's that whole idea, I possess the strength, but I choose not to use the strength. Jesus Christ possesses these things. He doesn't cease to possess them in his essence of what he has, but he has emptied himself of all access to them. He has said, made a determination that um, I will not access those. So how do we account for the authority he had over demons? How do we account for his knowledge uh, of even knowing what's in men's hearts, that no one needed, Paul, John says that no one needed to tell him what's in men's hearts because he knew. How do we have uh, an understanding of the power of his miracles? Uh, what is the foundation of that if he has emptied himself of access to these divine attributes? How do we account for that? Holy Spirit. And that is why you will see uh, no real ministry of Jesus Christ till after the baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit into his life at that baptism event. Then you will see all of his ministry being really keyed in. Uh, now, does that mean that he did not have natural capacities? Yes, he had natural capacities. He was a man. And that was evidence that he had perfect natural capacities, which is why, as a 12-year-old, he could confound the men at the temple. In his natural capacity of a perfect mind, perfect intellect, sinless creature, he would have been like Adam in his capacities, mentally, physically, all of that. So when it says that he grew in favor with God and men in, in wisdom and in stature, that's a natural progression. And we saw natural progression of growing in wisdom, stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. And, but yet he had a little advantage. The advantage is he had no sin. He, had, he was a perfect, a second Adam, as a perfect creature. So we're not talking about God coming into your situation, technically, because he's not entering into a body of sin. He is entering into a virgin-born spirit-conceived body with no human father. And so this is the distinction. This is why the virgin birth is so necessary because you inherit your sin nature from your father and it infects you. Jesus Christ did not have that infection that's somehow tied to the, what is it, the X chromosome or the Y? Men are XY, girls are what? YY? Oh, this should be YY because we have no idea why YY girls, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Jesus Christ did, so sin isn't tied to that chromosome necessarily, and Jesus, God had to provide that. Um, but we have the, the biblical teaching that you're in the image of your father. And that's true early on there in Genesis that Adam's children were in his image. 
Well, Jesus Christ is in the image of his Father, and so we're not talking about him becoming, uh, being tempted with a predisposition to sin, but in the sense that Adam was tested with no disposition towards sin because he was perfect. And so there can be some evidence. But what we do not agree with are the, are the extra-biblical accounts of Jesus doing these miracles as a child. You know, he picked up this dead bird and it came to life. Yes, that is extra-biblical legend. Okay, we have all these little legends about Jesus as a child that's been made up by men. Um, no, what we find in God's word is that the mechanism by which Jesus did what he did was the same mechanism available to you. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in him. Okay, which is also the spirit in Elijah and Elisha, the spirit in Samuel, spirit in the prophet. So we go through that, and, so, and that's why Jesus in his ministry could say, to his disciples, you're going to do greater things than I've done. Why? Because you're not doing it in your own strength and power. You're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What advantage did Jesus have? He had no sin in his life to inhibit the Holy Spirit's work. So the Holy Spirit's power could flow freely through him and fully through him. And as we submit ourselves to the will of the Father more and more, the Holy Spirit has more and more freedom to work through us. And that's why I said, don't resist him. You know, walk in the Spirit. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Spirit's power will flow through you. And so Jesus Christ shared that condition because he emptied himself and became man. Yes. Okay, the position that Jesus Christ at some point became God, which is what one of my, a tour guide in Israel told me, and I stood up and <clears throat> ended the session right there. I was like, well, that's heresy. That Jesus Christ became God, and it depends upon who you're talking to, frankly. Um, is this, did he become God when the Holy Spirit filled him? Did he become God? Some people say he didn't become God until he's on the cross, things like that, until he fully surrendered after Gethsemane, uh, and things like that. I don't know when the Mormons think he became God. Uh, any point, it depends on where in that point they say it happened, uh, that he became God uh, rather than being God always. And so that's a grave error, and this is one of the passages, like I said, they'll manipulate one end or the other. Either he's less than man or he's less than God. And we don't need to go that route if we understand the whole passage is about humility, if we understand what humility is. It is the surrendering, willful surrendering of either authority or ability that you have for a purpose. Okay, so if I surrender myself to God, I have my will. It's still intact. I still have all of those privileged rights, but I have given them over to God, and I work very diligently to try to make that a daily event, that I'm going to surrender my will to his will. And that's why we are told in James, don't say you're going to do this and go do that. Say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this and that. You're reminding yourself that your schedule is not yours, it is God's. You think that you're controlling your schedule, but all it takes is one thing and your schedule is blown out of the water, isn't it? All you have to have is one automobile accident, you have to just fall off a scaffold, now everything changes, things like that. All right? Or someone else's life interrupts you, and you get a phone call, and now you have to drop everything and go somewhere uh, for ministry. And 
That's why you condition everything, because you've already surrendered yourself to the will of God. So stop try acting like he's not your Lord, because that means you haven't surrendered. So Jesus Christ fully surrendered to the will of the Father, and fully surrendered, gave up access to those attributes of God, and the illustrations you have in God's word, where he is using power, uh, should be understood as derived from the Holy Spirit. Really. That's really where we should see that derivation. And even the resurrection, is, did Jesus resurrect himself? No. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, God, the Father, raised him from the dead. And that's a very important thing we're going to get to here in a little bit. So that's the kenosis. So he was a perfect sacrifice. He never sinned. We have all the narrative of his birth that's described there of the places and and that he's the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst me, beheld him, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know him. He's the word incarnate in flesh. Any questions on the incarnation? A lot of the stuff I've always taught before, but we want to cover any bases. Any questions on any of those verses? What about a meaning? What do you have for a meaning for that? What does it mean to you that Jesus Christ was born in the flesh? All right, he is your, your friend. He, has, he knows what you're up against. He knows hunger, he knows thirst, he knows all of those basal appetites of being a human. Um, he knows temptation, and, and that brings us to, the next, to another question, which, had, which is the next point. <laughs> Could Jesus be tempted? Could Jesus be tempted? That's amazing. Everybody agree on that? Okay. Now, let's take a next step. Could Jesus have sinned? All right, this is, this is a hypothetical question. We went from a true question, which is, could Jesus be tempted? Yes. And as soon as you have that as a possibility, that he could be tempted, means that he shares what you have. He shares the natural desires of man. Look at the temptations of Satan on Jesus Christ. All right, there's four of them. I know there's only three in the one on, in the wilderness, but there's a fourth one, and, and uh, maybe even a fifth one along the way. Uh, but look at the three, particularly in the temptation in the wilderness. What is he tempted as? Same thing that was tempted of Eve. You know, look at this. Here's a, here, I'll give you all this kingdom, and... And lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And so here's some food, because you have hunger, you haven't eaten for 40 days. So here's some food. These are all base needs of man that still drive you to action. What happens when you don't eat for a while? Well, all right, let me help you understand. Hangriness is because <laughs> you've never... <laughs> Hangry goes away, okay? That's a blood sugar thing that's built upon a metabolism that needs to eat so many carbs or so many things so often. If you get past that, um, you can actually fast fairly easily if you get past that, unless you're Julie, because she fasted once and I thought it was, she was going to die. Uh, I don't know, her metabolism is weird. But uh, she has to eat like 17 times a day. Uh, maybe not anymore, I don't know, but when she was young. Once you get past that, you can get into a metabolic state where you're not that shaking and, and angry, all right? Uh, and so, but what drives true hunger? 
What kind of things are you willing to do if you're truly hungry? Steal? Maybe you'll even trade your birthright for a bowl of soup. Okay? And so Satan was tempting Jesus on those same levels that we are tempted. You know, will you compromise your ethics at work so that make sure your family is fed? Those kinds of things. And so Jesus Christ is, is, is tempted like we are. And that is important, and the Bible talks about that, that we have this advocate with the Father who knows our needs. That's a great application. He knows us, but he's never sinned. Could he have sinned is a very different theological question. We all agree that Jesus Christ could be tempted. Could Jesus Christ have sinned? And people are not in this church today because of this question, among others. I don't think just because of that, but among others. Could Jesus Christ have sinned? All right. The, the, the statement is that it kind of takes away the power of temptation if he can't sin. And it makes it an unreal thing, right? It's not genuine. It's not a genuine temptation if he could not sin. So I have a struggle. People say, well, he could be tempted, but he could not sin. Then how can you tempt someone that can't sin? You can't, Okay. Uh, and yet that is the position of many, many people. They say, no, God is holy, holy, holy. Because they have defined God as holy, instead of God possessing holiness, they cannot have a representation of God that has the possibility of sin in them. Because they define God, instead of saying God is holy in terms of a possession he has, God is holiness. That holiness is God, essentially. And that, and I've been called a heretic for saying that Jesus Christ could certainly have sinned because he completely emptied himself of his prerogatives towards his deity. Which means he could truly be tempted, and yes, he truly could have sinned. And perhaps the strongest temptation was not with Satan, but at Gethsemane when he says, Oh, if only this cup could pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So we know that there was a will different of the Father than the Son. They had separate wills. Think about that for a little bit. On at least one occasion, they had a separate will. And I would contend with you that this is really represented to us all the way back to the beginning of creation of man, when God is talking to God and saying, let us create man in our image. One of the deity suggested that. One person of the triune God suggested that, and apparently the others agreed. Let us. Somebody said, let us. Whether it's the Father, Son, or Spirit, doesn't tell us. God said it. So who's the us he's talking to? Him and the other two. Personalities. So we, it's very confusing. So, sorry about that. I should have thrown that in there. Uh, so we come to this understanding of the triune God, and, that, and they say, well, no, God is holy. Holiness really is God to them. And then they do what we talked about in the Trinity, and they confuse the persons, or they divide the substance. We don't want to do either one of those. So, could Jesus Christ, distinct from the Father and distinct from the Son, or distinct from the Spirit, could the Son sin and yet the Father still be unable to sin, and the Spirit be unable to sin. 
This is the question. Yes. In fact, he's the only one that emptied himself. And in further fact, here's the biggest thing that's going to lead us to the next point. He did become sin. Did he not? How? Does the Father become sin and the Spirit become sin when Jesus became sin on the cross for you? No. Don't confuse the persons nor divide the substance of God. And so usually the errors are in one of those two directions. Either they confuse the, the, the three or they divide the three too much. So we're not trying to divide them too much. We're not trying to divide the substance. But it is very evident that Jesus became sin. He was tempted and he had an independent will from the Father. That may be the condition eternally, but it's certainly the condition in his humanity. He was 100% God, 100% man, but he had emptied himself of his right to use of his attributes. And I would contend all of them, even an attribute called holiness. Thus he could truly be tempted and with a true possibility of exercising his will at variant and opposition to the Father's will. That might blow your mind. It blows my mind. It should. But we accept it because this is how God word declares it. And it's precious to us. I don't know what use to you is for a man who can't sin to be tempted. What use is that to you? How can that help you with temptation? Are any of you unable to sin? <laughs> if only, if only, right? How can anyone who's never experienced what you have understand your experience? Well, I think God can because he made us. Um, but he certainly came to us and he advocates for us. He knew we were made of dirt. He knew what we are. And that's true even in the Old Testament. You didn't have to experience this to fully understand. But to be able to, to come in and say, here, I'm going to show you by engaging in what you're up against. I'm going to come right up with you, and I'm going to engage in what you're up against. Uh, and we can do that. I don't have to be a drug addict to know what drug addicts are up against, right? But am I willing to come up and stand side by side with them through their withdrawal? Okay? Now, because I can associate with them. Jesus Christ can associate with us without sin, because he does, I understand the temptation. I understand how difficult it is to get, out, to get drugs out of your system. Um, I have drugs in my system right now. Because after every meal, just about, I have that chocolate. If you don't think sugar is a drug, you need to study it more fully. Um, and so is chocolate, yeah. Caffeine. My wife, we got to the Bahamas and she forgot coffee. or She couldn't find her tea bags. And she was having severe headaches. We were working and... She had to go lay down, and she's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I hope I'm not getting sick. I have these severe headaches. And I was like, well, and then she found her tea bags, and everything was wonderful again. Now, you know, I say, you addict? No, I just, no, no, no. I'd feel the same way if I didn't have ice cream for a week. Um, no. <laughs> so Jesus Christ comes on, and he has, he has, he has a tenderheartedness towards us, because he knows the power of temptation. Even though he didn't submit to it, he still understands its power. 
in our circumstance. Yes. Correct. Right. Is temptation sin? Now, and then somebody will say, well, he wasn't tempted. He was just tried. Okay. I, I love those people because I can just rip them to shreds because it's the exact same Greek word. Trial and temptation is the same word. God sends us trials. Satan sends us temptations. It's the same word. You know what the difference is? One sends it to give you a chance to do well. The other one sends it with a chance for you to do wrong. The only difference between a trial and a temptation is the intent of the one sending it. When God sends it, it's a trial. Why? Because he's trying to get you to choose for him. When Satan sends it, he wants you to fail and to choose against God. But the end result, what's the end result if you fail a trial? You sin. What's the end result if you fail a temptation? No, you're righteous. Because the tempter is trying to get you to sin. So when you fail, no, I'm just, that, that's confusing to you. So let's not go there. So either way, whether it's a trial or temptation, if, if you end up on the negative side of that, you're in sin. But it, it really communicates the intention. So God never comes to you trying to get you to sin, but he does come and try to test your faith, uh, hoping that you will do right. So why did he leave Hezekiah? He left Hezekiah to try him. Let's see if he will follow me when I'm not right there. And it says that God left to, to test Hezekiah. Did God want Hezekiah to fail and do what he did? No. He was, his desire is, is always good. He wanted Hezekiah to say, Lord, come back and help me. But Hezekiah didn't seek the Lord. And then he made that horrible mistake. Uh, and that cost Judah, and that's why Judah went into the hands of the Babylonians. Later, many years later. Not in Hezekiah's day, but many years later. So when we look at this, um, could Jesus be tempted? Yes. Could he have sinned? He had to have been able to sin, or the temptations are meaningless. They aren't genuine. And it says that he can associate with you. He was tempted at all points just like us, but without sin. He was, yes. Okay, let's, let's, yeah, you're right. And that's the second time you guys brought that up. So let's talk about temptation. Let's go to the book of James. This is our definition, right? Our definition passage is in James. So don't let other people define it for you. Let's let God, and, and this is a discussion I had with somebody. And where is sin? So let's go to James, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. You are blessed if you endure temptation or trials. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, or, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So if Jesus is God, it says God cannot be tempted by evil. I asked you if God, if Jesus could be tempted. You said yes. 
But James says God cannot be tempted with evil. So the second step that Jesus Christ could have sinned shouldn't be a problem for you because you've already contradicted James's view of God that he cannot be tempted with evil. Let's keep going. Uh, nor does he himself tempt anyone because God doesn't want anyone to sin. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So, let's look at the process. One is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Is this sin? Have we sinned yet? By definition, you have not. Okay? So something is trying, something or someone is trying to draw you away by your own desires, and that's enticement. Isn't this pretty? Don't you want to touch it? You guys have all done that to little children and stuff. You know, we we try to tap into their their human desires and get them to do our will. Hopefully. Doing that is a good thing. You know, don't you want to wash this? <laughs> Doesn't that feel good to be clean? Um, we're, and so we're, we're, what are we tapping? We're tapping their feelings. Doesn't that feel good to be clear? Enticing by their own desires. So does having your own desires sin? No. Okay. So you have been introduced to... By the way, the, the attempt is to draw you away, notice. They're using your own desires to entice you. And so you're, you have your own desires, they're enticement. So let's go back to the original one. Was Eve drawn away by her own desires and enticed? Before she ate? Certainly. Isn't this pretty? Uh, it's good for food. It's going to make you wise. These are all things that were appealing to her. But had she sinned yet? Even in her statement, well, that looks really good, and that sounds good, and maybe, yeah, but what should she, what, if she had just called out to the Lord, do you think he would have shown up and given her the other side of the deal? Certainly. Even if she would called out to her husband, he probably would have given her the other side of the deal. Let's discuss this. But she didn't. She, was, she listened to her desires. So, when desire has conceived... How do des- what does it mean to be have a desire conceived? An action. A conceived desire is an action or attitude. Okay? And so I'm not going to say just action because the Bible says if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So it's an action or attitude. Okay? And so I can be confronted with this image and say, whoa, that's... And, and then I have to decide. Okay, there's plenty of women out there that'll try to get men to be drawn away by their own desires toward their physical appearance. And so we turn away. Does that, is that image already been seen? Yes, I can't unsee what I've seen. But now I have to deal with that desire. What am I going to deal with it? Am I going to succumb to that by lusting? Or am I going to uh, bring it under control and say, I don't, I'm, and I'm going to avert my gaze, I'm going I'm to shut that out, and I want to meditate on something good. <laughs> okay? 
even if I didn't commit adultery with her and go, you know, have a physical relationship, um, my own desires could still produce sin in my heart through lust, all right? So sin isn't just an action. It can also be something in your heart. And that's the same thing with murder. You know, I hate you. And the Bible says, do you hate your brother? Well, you have already committed murder in your heart. I wish them dead. And a lot of people on Facebook right now are wishing our president dead. Hope he dies of it. Yes, it's actually on social media. And somehow Facebook doesn't block them. And Twitter doesn't block that as hate speech. I don't know what can be more hateful. Wishing someone dead is the most hateful thing you can say, isn't it? Wish they were dead. I, wish, I hope he dies of it. That should be blocked as hate speech. Think about that. So, when, when your desires are conceived, okay, that's when it begins. Having a desire is part of being a person, your own desires. When it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. All right, so we have a process. What is the process of conception? <laughs> this is, we're going to talk about the abortion debate now for the next half hour. All right, the process of conception is you have a seed and it grows. And then it gives birth. All right, so wherever you think that life starts, we for sure know it's life at birth, right? It gives birth to sin. We believe that, well, certainly at least by the time it embeds, because the Bible says life is in the blood. So I'm not necessarily a, a conception guy, uh, but I'm at least an embedded guy. So whenever that fertilized egg is embedded into the utero wall, we have life, okay? Because life is in the blood, the Bible says. So um, that's what I base it on. If you want to hold, when a fertilized egg is a human being, that's fine. Um, hopefully you still love me if I'm not so sure about that. And so um, we have the seed planted. It's embedded in the ural wall and it grows. And it grows to maturity. The maturity is sin. So go back to our adultery situation. I'm having this flash. Some girl flashes me, okay, um, which they do on TV all the time anymore. All right, now I have to deal with that. What am I going to do with that? Um, I can let that grow, right? I can let that embed itself in my thought. I can't remove it from my, from my mind, from my eyes. So now I'm going to let it either grow or I'm going to, Try to abort it. I'm going to try to remove it. I'm going to try to um, replace it with some better things and focus my attention on other things. All right? And that's that process. So, at what point is sin? It says when it is given birth to sin. So, is there a process involved? Yes. Let's not be so quick. Uh, and, and my discussion with people one person was writing to me, and I was like, it doesn't matter where it happens in this process, where it's actually sin. The Bible says it's not sin until the conception has given birth. You can, I can conceive of sin without committing that sin, right? I can think of a sin without, I can, 
I could even think of how to commit mass murder without doing it. Be a kind of a useless use of my brain to sit there and figure out how to commit mass murder and get away with it or something like that. But I can conceive of it without doing it or even wanting to do it. Uh, most police officers have to conceive of sin all the time to figure out, and every, every detective novel, you have to conceive of the sin to understand the sinner to, to find them. But did they commit the act? No. But, I have to con- but it's when it gives birth to sin. And so, um, at what point does it give birth to lust? Because now I put in my mind what... I shouldn't, all right? And so at some point that has to be addressed. So there's a process involved here. And we want to not, we, here's what happens. Here's why we think as soon as I'm tempted, it's sin. Because I don't want to give birth to sin that I don't want to conceive of it. And so we call the conception sin. Well then, what if, if that's sin, I don't want to get that far, so maybe we should really rail on people's desires. And now it's wrong to have uh, a sexual desire. Exactly. You end up making the same thing the Pharisees did of called hedge laws. We want to keep you from breaking the law, so now we're going to make this extra law to keep you from breaking the law so you never get close to that. Well, then that becomes normative. Now we want to not break that, so now we have to have this out, and we have all these, and this is what we've done. We've backed this process up to the point that temptation itself becomes sin. Oh, how can I even think of doing that? Well, easy, you're human. Jesus Christ thought about not going to the cross. He, can, he, he entertained the idea of not going to the cross. There's no way he could come to the Father and says, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, there's no way you could make that statement without conceiving of, a, of avoiding the cross. He had to think about that. It had to be conceived in his mind. But he didn't act on that conception. So do not confuse conception with the act. I can conceive of and talk about things without doing it, even things like hatred. I can talk about hatred all day long and not hate somebody because I could be speaking against it. I could be talking about lust all day long and not commit it because I'm not engaged in it. We can conceive of these things. I can talk about, about covetousness all day long without coveting. Can't I? I can conceive of these things without being exercising them, because the Bible does it all the time. How many times in the Bible are the lists of sins what you used to be like? Almost every book in the New Testament, huh? Somewhere along there's a list of the, this is what you used to be like. But now you're like this. Don't set your mind on these old things. This is your old man. Set your mind on these new things. Well, what are they giving you? They're giving you a list of sins. Are they planting those sins in your mind? to process and develop and to give birth to them? No. We're actually conceiving them so that we can confront them and reject them and not let them give birth to sin. Notice where sin is in the development of James. It is way down the line. Let's not keep backing it up and having false guilt for when we are tempted, when we have natural desires. I'm not going to attempt 
these days, um, there's no way I'm, you know, even, even homosexual desires. I want to address that. And we should be willing to address that with people. Because that's not any different than other desires. You might say, oh, no, because if they haven't acted on that, it is something that has been planted in them. Our world has been pushing that on them and pushing it on them and trying to make it attractive. And so the interest in it, or even the transgender stuff, you know, I wonder what it's like to be a girl. Maybe that's what I am. Don't make the desire equal to the sin. Otherwise, we can never get victory in our lives. Because just because the desire is there doesn't mean you have to respond to the desire. The desire isn't sin. It is when it takes control of your life. And when you go from saying, well, yeah, I like girls, to lusting after a girl, that's breaking the line. Okay? I wouldn't have four children if I didn't like girls, at least one. All right? God has blessed that. Before there was sin, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's a natural desire. Don't confuse that with sin. I don't know how we got into all that tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. It's all Valerie's fault. Jesus Christ became flesh. What a blessing. All right, what a blessing. And he lives sinlessly. So we only got two points instead of four, but hopefully it has been valuable discussion for you tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for his willingness to surrender uh, the use and the access to his divine, divine attributes that he might serve us. Lord, help us to have that same attitude towards one another, to surrender our will to the needs that we see around us, that our comforts, that our interests can be put on hold for the, for the interests of your kingdom, that we can give them up like Jesus Christ gave up, that he might become flesh and even die and become sin for us. Lord, we marvel at the extent of his humility. And if we just have a fraction of that, we know you can do powerful things in our midst. And so Lord, help us. You've shown us through your word and through your people. Help us to implement that. And Lord, you've taught us in your model prayer to pray about temptation, to not to not come, but that we might be able to stand. That we are blessed because we're tempted, because we have an opportunity to show our stuff, to show our walk with you, our faith. That we have a chance to engage the enemy for victory through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for his example, a genuine one. We pray you might help us to follow it and that you might truly uh, give us victory in temptation as we uh, surrender our thoughts to you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.